<laughs> Good morning, church. I, uh, the only reason I kind of chuckle at that is because uh, our online, welcome online, if you're with us, joining us online, you should give us a quick like emoji, I'm here online, if you're, if you're there, oh, okay, right there, sorry. Um, that way we know who's with us, sometimes we don't know, and so it's, it's always good, and we can say, hey, thanks for joining us, so, you know, those little emoji like, I'm here, hand raises. Um, but anyway, the reason I was kind of chuckling at that is because if you're online, you don't see our little sermon bumper. So it just sounds like dramatic music I'm coming out to. You know, it's like, kum, 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 and I'm like walking out. It's got to be kind of like, well, that's okay, whatever. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, we want to put one in your hand. So just go ahead. And, and uh, we had ordered some, and they were out of stock, and so we ordered some more. So uh, good deal, I guess. Bible's out of stock, but uh, I, I guess... Uh, that means I guess people are ordering them, but I digress. Let's turn in our Bibles. Uh, by the way, uh, December 26th, we're just going to do an online-only service, okay? I want you to know that. That way, you know, we've just been kind of thinking and praying about it, and uh, not only for your family to be able just to hang out with, the, you know, with each other on the Christmas weekend, but also for those who serve here and the staff here, not having to get up extra early and come and do all those kinds of things. We just want to be a blessing to everybody in that capacity, but we will provide a service uh, for you uh, online to join us uh, that Sunday as well, okay? So anyway, Micah today, chapter 5, we're going to look at it in its entirety, all 15 verses, and just as the Lord would have it be, the title of the message, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I promise I didn't, you know, plan in advance, well, Micah's got this many chapters on the first Sunday in December, it's going to be like this, and then we're going to, but we're not going to have service this day, or someone's going to speak on that day, so when I get to five, it's just going to be right there. That's just the Lord's providence. You know, and we love when God does those kinds of things, brings us into the quote-unquote Christmas season with a, a thought about uh, the coming of our Savior, amen? So, let's take our hearts to Him even now. Lord, once again, we just say thank you for joining us together. Lord, we, we recognize how good, how pleasant it is uh, to dwell together in unity, in harmony. And we're just praying, God, that your spirit would move uh, just in, in a way, God, that brings edification to the body, glorification to you. Lord, salvation, if need be, in this place. We love you, and we just give this time to you. Have your way, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, family, allow me to remind you of the rubber band pattern of prophecy that is so prevalent throughout Micah's message. The, the phrase that is coined or that is used most prevalently, we talked about it last week, it's called prophetic telescoping. And what that amounts to is that it's not uncommon at all, uh, we saw it last week, when you're studying uh, prophecy to have in front of you a passage that deals with you know, what's happening presently, that is uh, in the text historically, but then without warning the prophet will take you hundreds, maybe thousands of years down the prophetic pipeline, and then suddenly, without warning, he will snap back to their current situation, or perhaps any interim period in between. And that may take place within the span of a single verse, maybe two, uh, or something like that. You know, God not being bound by any constraints of time, he just seems to, on the occasion, speak without regard to time. And he is 
well within his rights to do that. Now, in Micah chapter 4, if you remember right, he volleys back and forth between what was happening with them, clear up to and even into the second coming of Christ and his ensuing millennial reign upon the earth. And here in chapter 5, he's going to continue to do that. But now he adds into the mix the first coming of Christ, who he is, uh, you know, uh, or who he will be, where he will be from, what he will do, the peace he will usher in, and his purifying work both within his people and upon the earth. And when you think through that, it's really pretty incredible. It's astounding, really, uh, when you consider the magnitude of detail that Micah articulates in such a concise little section of Scripture. Now, Last week I mentioned to you in passing that prophecy is kind of the primary way, I shouldn't say kind of, it's the primary way in which God ratifies and verifies who he is to man. I quoted to you Isaiah 46, it says this, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, notice, And there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. It's not uncommon that people ask the question, how do I know that I can really trust the Bible? You know, I mean, what makes it any more special, any different really than any other religious writing, say uh, the Book of Mormon or the Koran or or whatever the case may be? And the short answer is, even if we left out its uh, accuracy historically or uh, the verification archaeologically, the short answer is prophecy. There is no other book on the planet that dares to stake its authenticity, its reliability upon the fact that it can always with 100% accuracy speak of what's to come as though it's history. And uh, if it ever misses, you can throw the entire thing out. The Bible is the only book to make such a claim, to dare to say such a thing. In the King James Version of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, it's referred to as the more sure word of prophecy. Uh, They're more sure of what? Well, more sure than even an eyewitness account. That's what he's speaking of when you go to that particular passage. He's talking about, you know, Peter is, is calling to mind for them uh, the fact that he saw Jesus Christ transfigured before him on the holy mountain, uh, that he saw him in glory uh, before his eyes, that he heard the voice of God speaking out from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw uh, Moses and Elijah and Christ there in glory transfigured before them and Peter was kind of the you know kind of like you or me I, I assume not always knowing what to say but feeling like he should say something and there he was and he says Lord it's good for us to be here we should build a, a tabernacle for for you and and for uh, and go ahead go ahead show it up there I guess for you and for Moses 
and, and all, and for Elijah, and then the Lord broke through, God the Father saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. He is the completion, you see, of all the law, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then he goes on to say, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Which is to say, Peter was saying, look, even as great as an eyewitness can be, he says, greater than the witness I can provide by what I experience personally is the even more certain word of prophecy. God is not a man that he should lie. If he says it, he will do it. If he speaks it, he will make it good. And if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, I'd encourage you to go back, maybe download those studies. They're free on our app or uh, online. And uh, Micah has been bringing some radical revelation. And I think you'd do well to maybe uh, get into that, soak up that uh, information. So here we are. Let me draw your attention, beginning in the first verse of the fifth chapter. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us, and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the, which means fruitful, by the way, and it was to distinguish between the other number of Bethlehems that were there. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Well, as you might imagine, we're going to spend some time here today. We established the principle in, of the first verse last week that though there will be a beautiful end for the nation of Israel eventually, their situation would be currently as a result of their rejection and rebellion of, of uh, you know against God his ways his word would be one of tribulation exaltation would come but first there would be tribulation and pain Assyria would come against them now with regard to Judah Assyria would fail because God would protect them uh, but they would take Israel to the north uh, and but a hundred years later Babylon would be Judah's undoing to the south. And we read in the first verse that they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity that surrounds this statement. Some will uh, say that it refers to Zedekiah who was the last king of Judah, and he was taken and he was tortured and, and all of his sons were killed in front of his eyes and then his eyes were put out. Uh, that was the last thing that he saw. Now others would say, no, no, this is a clear reference to Christ who was struck on the head with a rod, who was beaten in the face there at his trial. Now, as for me, I'm not altogether sure that it's necessary to be dogmatic on one position or the other because they're both true. 
okay? Uh, The Bible does declare that Jesus would be beaten beyond recognition, struck, if you will. Isaiah tells us, so his visage, visage meaning when you looked at him visually, his sight was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, that doesn't mean when it says more than man that he was beaten more than any man would ever be. What it means is that his visage was marred more than man, meaning you couldn't distinguish him as a man. He was no longer recognizable when you looked at him. He was beyond human recognition. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune, uh, the tragic opportunity to pull upon an accident or something whereby uh, when you look upon it, the person in the vehicle is so mangled or uh, bloodied or bruised and swollen that you just kind of you have to look away. Um, that was kind of the result of the beating that Jesus endured for you and for me. He was wounded, the Bible says, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, you and me, we are healed. And so, as I said, uh, be it Zedekiah or Jesus that this is in reference to, Either way, it holds true. Now, having said that, I should also let you know that those who hold to, well, this is a reference to Zedekiah, will point out the contrast, and it may well be, ladies and gentlemen, uh, because they will point out the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, Israel is soundly in the hands of their enemy, and verse 2 brings into focus the deliverer uh, for you and for me. And again, it may, it may be, look at verse 2, because notice the contrast, he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Though there would be great humiliation coming in the captivity, again, a time of great exaltation would come through this one to be ruler in Israel, whom God would raise up from the humble birthplace of Bethlehem. Now, you and me as Christians today are incredibly familiar with the tiny town of Bethlehem. You know, we sing the song. We sang the song. And even in ancient Israel, it was known well, well known as the birthplace of King David. You know, Israel's greatest king. But ladies and gentlemen, beyond that, you should know that Bethlehem was never an influential kind of city. And what that means is that when you think of great and influential cities of the ancient world, if you're like me, Bethlehem just does not come to mind. You know, I mean, there you are, you're God. Put yourself in God's place, and you're going to bring your son into the world. Where are you going to choose to do that? 
You know, if it's me, I'm thinking of some kind of pomp, some kind of pageantry, uh, you know, perhaps the political epicenter of the world, you know, Rome. There it is. And, and if all roads lead to Rome, that's a reverse engineering, right? That means all roads actually were built out from Rome. And so the word of the gospel and the coming of the Savior could spread like wildfire so rapidly. Yeah, maybe that's the place where it should be. Or, I don't know, maybe... Not the political center of the world, but maybe the intellectual center of the world. You know, uh, Athens. And there, there they are in ancient Greece, people probing the depth of life's mysteries and being mesmerized by the entrance of the Messiah as deity and humanity and spreading this, you see. Or, I don't know, maybe the religious epicenter of the world. You know, Jerusalem with its rich spiritual heritage and deep scriptural study, it would seem to make sense that the ruler of Israel would come forth from a place like Jerusalem. But Bethlehem? Uh, Bethlehem was, and is, I might add, just a little podunk town about five miles outside of Jerusalem, a virtually no great influence or significance within the national, tiny, little, even in the towns, the cities of, of Judah, much less the entire scope of the nation. Uh, no significance nationally or globally. It's always been, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Again, even in the cities of Judah, just insignificant, no rapport. But to me, and we've said it a lot lately, I just see in principle, uh, the, that, that principle in play that we see again and again throughout Scripture, how God likes to choose and likes to use the least of these. You know what I'm talking about? Messiah would come from humble beginnings, not a place of renown, not pomp and pageantry, but from a place of humility. The birthplace of the Messiah here in the book of Micah prophesied 700 years in advance. And this is the passage, you remember, as we come upon the season, maybe you'll re-familiarize yourself with, with the gospel of Matthew and the coming of Christ. And this is the passage that the chief priests and the scribes quoted from in Matthew chapter 2 when King Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. But there's some things we need to notice here in this second verse. First of all, we need to note that this ruler would come forth, God says... To me. Did you see that? And what that means is that the express agenda of the Messiah would be not to be about his own will, but the will he would be devoted, he would be dedicated to the will of the one who sent him. He would be coming to do the Father's will, to accomplish his plan. And this is why we. You and, and, and me, we read over and over again Jesus uttering words to the extent of, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He will come forth to me, God says. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. My, wouldn't that be a wonderful 
uh, statement to be able to say that you always, uh, without fail, uh, do those things that please your Father who is in heaven. Well, what else do we note here? That though he would come forth from Bethlehem, I want you to notice, this is important, that his origins were not found in Bethlehem. His goings forth, notice, are from of old, from everlasting. That is, from days of immeasurable time. Here, Micah is moving beyond the humanity of Jesus, though being born through humanity, he would be fully man. But now he's coming into, he's speaking how the Messiah is coming out of eternity. Micah now begins to highlight his deity. You need to understand that Jesus did not begin to exist as a little baby lying there in a manger in Bethlehem because there was no room for them in the inn. His goings forth, as we read here, are from of old, from everlasting. Yeah, it's true that he wrapped or robed himself in humanity when he came to and through Bethlehem, but he existed in his deity from before time began. Okay, last week I quoted to you from Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Again, this is, we're talking millennial kingdom here. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What I want you to see here is that the child born speaks to his humanity, but the son given speaks to his deity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The child was born in Bethlehem. The son is from of old, from everlasting. Before creation ever existed, Jesus was there as the eternal second person of the Godhead. The Psalm of Moses says it this way. It says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now in the Hebrew, it's, it's incredibly vivid. It, when it says from everlasting to everlasting, a more literal translation might be uh, from the vanishing point in the past to the vanishing point in the future, you are God. And what that means is that you can go back in your mind just as far as you can possibly fathom. There you are. You know, today we're hearing the insanities of this world. You know, uh, you know, 250 billion years ago, this happened or that happened. Uh, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into the ludicrousies of evolution and, and those kinds of things. But, but be that as it may, what I'm trying to say is that we've been programmed to think like billions and billions and billions. Well, just keep going. Billions. Hundreds of billions, hundreds of trillions, zillions. You know, you're just thinking back. You're thinking back, thinking back, thinking back. And there comes a point where it just begins to go, and it disappears. Like, I cannot fathom a time beyond this point. Or, Or reverse that. Go into the future. How far can you go? How far can you go? How far can you go? 
And what this is saying is that when you think back as far as you can possibly comprehend till it all vanishes in your mind, Christ comes from before that to meet you there. And when you go as far as you possibly can, Christ will still be there. The the Bible says it like this. He is the what? Alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. From before time began to eternity, uh, as far as you can fathom, in the beginning was the word. Again, from before the vanishing point. This would be the Greek uh, kind of same idea. In the beginning, from before uh, the vanishing point was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God, or more literally in the Greek, and God was the word. Not a distinction, he is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So Christ couldn't have been formed at this point if he made all things, he himself was not made. Does that make sense? Colossians tells us that he's before all things, and in him all things consist. Family, believe me when I tell you that time would fail us to make mention of or spend time on all the passages that point to the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus himself said before, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is what set the religious leaders off when he said that because the I am was the same word from the burning bush passage when Moses said, who will I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. Before creation existed, he was God. Yet he came into creation. He came to his own at the appointed time by way of little podunk country Bumpkin, kind of town, Bethlehem. Why? What was the purpose of his coming? Well, I referred you to that burning bush passage. If you were to actually review that and go through that, you would find in Exodus chapter 3 where he said, I have seen the oppression of my people and I have come down to deliver them. Redemption. Uh, In the New Testament vernacular, Jesus said it like this. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds on that night? For there is born to you this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He came to seek and to save. I have seen the oppression of my people and I have come down to deliver them. Isn't that incredible? Wow, praise God. Born in Bethlehem, but going forth from of old, from everlasting. Guys, I should probably just go ahead and say as well that we see him numerous times uh, in his pre-incarnate form throughout the Old Testament. You know, he appears often, you'll see the words, the angel of the Lord, and the A is capital. You guys know that the word angel just means messenger, right? 
And so you see this, the, the, the messenger of the Lord, of Yahweh. You know, we mentioned the burning bush passage, but he appeared to Hagar, you know, Abraham's maidservant, when she had been cast out and she was worried that uh, Ishmael was going to die and, and he appeared to her and assured her that he would become a, a great nation. He appeared to Abraham, you remember there, as he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Abraham started bargaining with the Lord, and you know. And but the question was, w- will not the Judge of all the earth do right? Who is the Judge of all the earth? You see, he appeared to Joshua as the commander of the Lord of Hosts when they were going in to take the Promised Land. He appeared to David over the threshing floor of Ornan and told him that that's where he was to make a sacrifice for the sin that he had committed. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. So what a, what a wonderful revelation here of the glory of Jesus being man, yet much more than man, he's God. And what a wonderful revelation of the love of Jesus that he would leave. There you are. Put yourself in his place in the glories, enthroned in heaven. You're going to elect to leave that? To come down? To add humanity to your deity and remain that way eternally and suffer unspeakably on the behalf of others for something you never did? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't see myself volunteering for that but that he would come down, that he might intercede on our behalf and pay the penalty of our sin, that we might through faith in him be made right in the sight of God. This is revelation of of the, the glory of Jesus, of the love of Jesus, of who he is and what he would do for you and for me. Now, of course, we can't leave this verse Uh, without making mention of the fact that the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And uh, Jesus is in fact the bread of life, amen. John chapter 6 and verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. He's the one who satisfies the deepest hunger in the heart of all men. He is the one. Now, in verse 3, guys, and we'll begin to pick up our pace here just a little bit, he says, therefore... He shall give them up. You know, we're going back here, verse 1, in, in, in the, he, until the time, notice, that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. We'll stop right there. So, and and just so you know, so we're seeing first coming, second coming. We're seeing these things happen, and this was why there was a lot of um, confusion amongst the religious leaders because they saw where he would come and provide this wonderful kingdom, and they couldn't quite compute. Now we have the the kind of the privilege of hindsight, right? We see how the prophecies of being wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities, and yet he would establish this rule and this reign. How does all this come together? Well, through the fact that he would come not just once, but twice, okay? But Micah prophesies of a time now that they will be given up, and it will seem as though the Lord is distant from them until... The time that she who is in labor 
has given birth. Now we spoke about this last week in verse 10 of chapter 4, that Israel would be given up. Uh, Times of tribulation, uh, trouble and pain. Again, as the result of their rejection of God and His Word, But we also know that he, that is the ruler of Israel, Jesus Christ, came to his own and his own did not receive him, but rejected him. And so they would be, as a nation, given up, you see, but not indefinitely. The time of tribulation would be turned to this time of great restoration. The remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now some see in this uh, partial fulfillment in the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948 when the remnant would return. I think, and again I wouldn't split hairs, but I think that its ultimate fulfillment will be realized in the great tribulation and the glorious restoration of Israel. The Lord will seem distant throughout that time of tribulation until the time of restoration is upon them. Then we read, and again now we're cresting into that millennial kingdom, that the Lord will shepherd His flock and He will stand and feed his flock. Remember, this was the problem because this was not happening in Micah's day. They, they ruled, those who ruled over Israel weren't feeding the flock. They were feeding on the flock. They were taking advantage of the flock. But when Christ returns, this is what he's saying, he's setting up the comparison and the contrast, that he will care for them. He will guide them, protect them. And as he shepherds the nation, we read that they will have peace and security. They shall abide. Why? Because his greatness, again, second coming, will reach to the ends of the earth. And I want you to note in verse 5 that it says, this one shall be peace. It's not that Jesus, this ruler from Bethlehem, simply brings peace He himself, right? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, that's what Paul writes. He himself is our peace. Now, carrying on, when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. And they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Uh, the idea here being that ultimately the, the ruler of Israel will destroy Israel's enemies. Now, when he speaks of the Assyrian, this is another kind of, it's a euphemism or another way to say the enemy of Israel. And though the Lord protected Judah from Assyria, right, historically, we know that the Assyrians invaded and trampled Israel to the north underfoot and took them off into captivity. And this is why we see that when we don't apply this to what happened historically, because it says when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads our palaces, we'll raise up seven shepherds, we'll be raise up eight princely men, you know, we'll protect it, it'll all be good in the end. Now, there are also those who see the Assyrian as another title for the Antichrist. 
You should know that since he represents Israel's ultimate enemy. And the word here is in the singular. When the Assyrian, when he comes. Again, we're not talking about this mass, you know, mobilized army, so to speak. It's in the singular. Um, Now, if that be the case, then the promise here is that when the nations gather against Israel in the battle of Armageddon and the Lord fights for them, the Lord will soundly defeat them. And then, of course, we read in Revelation 19 that the Antichrist, along with the false prophet, will be at that time taken and cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. He will soundly defeat him. Now, this phrase, seven shepherds and eight princely men, is another way of saying that God has more than enough resources and will raise up able men to defend them during that time. But guys, regardless of how you want to interpret this, the take-home is the same. Trust in the Lord. He is more than able to defend you, to fight for you, and to save you, okay? That's the takeaway here. Now, look at verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Do you remember last week how we pointed out that during the millennial reign of Christ, it's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, that people would flow into Jerusalem uh, to hear Jesus teach personally, and then missionaries would be flowing out of Jerusalem all over the world, and and, uh, the word of God would be going forth from Jerusalem and bringing forth blessing throughout the earth. We talked about all of that. Well, here, we're gleaning a little more insight Because after the final defeat of Israel's enemies, verse 7, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. In other words, the Jews will go forth into the world like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. The picture here is one of times of refreshing, uh, times of renewing, that Israel will be a blessing over the face of the earth. And their strength and stability, there will be an immutability uh, to their mission and their purpose. He says, like a lion among the beasts, among the flocks of sheep. Now, when I was reading this, guys, I couldn't help but think, and we won't linger on it, but I couldn't help but be reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, uh, when he said there of Israel, now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. You know, in other words, think of everything that God has accomplished through the fall and failure of Israel. Salvation for you and for me and all who would call upon his name. Just imagine what he's going to accomplish in the fullness of Israel when they're 
uh, obedient to him, recognizing and following after him. It'll be like dew on the grass, like showers, you see. In other words, there'll just be times of renewing and refreshing unparalleled throughout the world. And now finally, and this last section is all one, so we'll read it entirely here, verse, beginning in verse 10. Uh, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. And you shall no more worship, underline it, the work of your hands. And I will pluck your wooden images from your midst, and thus I will destroy your cities. And Karen, you can come on up. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Now, the point here is that the Lord will create purity and bring peace. And guys, that's the take home from this section you shall no longer worship the works of your hands. Everything that Israel had trusted or taken refuge in, the Lord will destroy. Their trust won't be in horses or chariots. Remember that passage, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The idea is is that our trust isn't in military might, but we trust in the Lord. There will be no spiritual deception or idolatry. And everyone who has refused to believe will be destroyed. That's what it means on this last verse where he says, uh, on the nations that have not heard, you know, I will execute vengeance and anger. It doesn't mean like, what do you mean? They never heard. Why would you execute? That's not the idea. The idea is those who have not obeyed. Okay, in other words, you remember when Jesus would say things like, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Uh, The idea is you not only heard it, but you've responded appropriately to it. If you've responded appropriately to something, you've heard it. You see what I mean? But those who have not heard, those who have chosen not to obey, he says, I'll execute vengeance upon them. Like a refiner's fire, having every impurity extracted from the precious metal, God will remove impurities from his people And they will trust in the Lord exclusively and wholeheartedly. And as for you and me, I want, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to do that for us. That he might burn away impurities. That he might remove any element of idolatry. Anything that we would put as a priority above him, you see. That we might trust in him wholeheartedly and that our lives might bring him glory. Amen. So Lord, we want to be holy, and we desire to bring you glory. And so, Lord, we echo the words of your servant David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And God, lead us in the way everlasting.
I pray, oh God, that you would have your way in every heart that's here, in every life that's here, in this place or online or wherever this may find the heart that's hearing. God, pour out your spirit. Revive us once again. I just pray, God, that there be an awakening in this community, a revival in this body. Lord, that we would just uh, turn to you with all of our hearts. Guys, idolatry, again, just while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I... I, sometimes I think the word idolatry, we feel divorced from it. We feel like it's non-applicable to us because, you know, it's not these little trinkets. We don't have any, you know, little Molex or, you know, whatever. But idolatry can be anything that you place as a priority over Christ. It can be a hobby. It could be money, you know. It could be a person. It could be your children. I don't know. But there's room for only one on the throne of your heart. And I pray that for you and for me that it be nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ who is worthy of all that we are and so much more. And as sure as Jesus came the first time, He will come again. And the way to be ready for him is to believe upon him, to give your heart, to give your life to him. And so if you don't know him, I implore you today that you turn from your sin and that you trust in Jesus Christ. And if that's applicable to you, if you don't know the Lord, if you've not given your heart to the Lord, and today there's just something maybe resonating in you or making sense to you that before Well, it's never really added up like that. And Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. You're ready and prepared to open it, to believe upon him and to let him in. I want to pray for you. I don't care who you've come here with or what, what your story is with regard to all the reasons why God might not love you or be ready to forgive you. Listen, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It's not the well who have need of a physician but the sick. And so if you're a sinner, you qualify for a Savior. Can I pray for you if if that's where you're at and today you're ready to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ? If so, I want you just to raise your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll say so and you can put it back down. But I just want to give you a second to say, you know what, this is... This moment's for me. I need Jesus Christ to come into my life and to forgive me of my sin. Who are you? God bless you. God bless you. Guys, that's why we're here. We're not playing games. We're not asking you to join a church. We're saying believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Is there anyone else I can pray for? Okay. As for the rest of you who know the Lord or are walking with the Lord, I just encourage you to take a moment to just renew your heart before the Lord. Just seek Him to to remove the dross from your heart, from your life, from your mind. Those, Those impurities that He might refine you 
that he might be glorified in you, that he might use you, that nothing hinder what he wants to do in and through you. And if you're turning your heart to the Lord for the first time, well, here's the deal. The Bible says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we'll confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not some of it, not most of it, not all of it, except for that really one, that bad, really bad one thing that you did. There's none of that. All unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far the Lord removes our sin from us. Immeasurable in distance. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. And so just come before Him. I just encourage you in your heart to just get on your face and just say, Lord, here I am. And I am a sinner. I have sinned and fall short of your glory. But I'm asking you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I open my heart. I believe on you. And I ask you to take your place upon the throne of my heart. Overturn the tables of sin. Purify me. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to lead my life for you from this day forward. Until I see you face to face. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. Listen, if you you pray to prayer like that, I want you to know that God hears the cry of your heart. That old things have passed away and all things have been made new. You're a a new creature, new creation. You don't identify with your sin. That's not who you are. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. You're robed now in His righteousness. Not about what you do or have done. It's about what He's done for you. Rejoice in that. Father, we just thank You for the sufficiency of the cross. We cast all our cares upon you. We thank you that you care for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, won't we rise to our feet? May the Lord bless you and and may his spirit abide upon you and uh, May you find yourself just in that place of saying, Lord, search me, try me, know me. Uh, you know, my anxieties, what, is, what does that represent? That represents those things with which maybe we have failed to trust God completely. The Bible says we can cast our cares upon Him knowing that He cares for us, right? In other words, if you really believe God cares for you and is able to take care of you, what have you got to worry about? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those things, all those needs will be added to you, be taken care of for you, you see. If you have any need for prayer, that's why we've assembled down here uh, to be available to you, whatever your need may be. If you were praying with me and saying yes to Jesus, I encourage you to come. Pastor Russ is up here. We'd love to just pray with you, maybe give some material to you. 
And uh, if it's your first time here or, or you've signed up on the list out there, hang around and I, I look forward to hanging out with you and, and enjoying some, I don't know if there'll be bread to break. I'm going to presume maybe there will be, but proverbially speaking. And you can, if you have questions for me or just kind of want to hear my story or, you know, what's happening with the ministry, we'll get to all of that. Um, so, Father, once again, we're just praying that you would, you would renew us, that you would search us, that you would know us, that you would lead us in the way everlasting, that we would find ourselves burdened with the things of which your heart is burdened and on fire for the things for which you're zealous. And uh, Lord, uh, renew our, our hunger for your word. We thank you for the promise that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you will fill us. And so God, we pray now that you go before us and Lord, that your word take root in us and uh, be fruitful again for your glory. We love you and we thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week in front of you, and we'll see you next time.